Revelation 14, 14 says, And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him, who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And verse 18, another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the harvest, the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Lord, I pray that you would help us to honor you in this time. And God, we all come into the room with a sin nature sinful hearts, and yet there's been the deposit of the Holy Spirit and the impartation of grace by your presence in our lives. And I ask, God, that you would be our teacher. You would heal our hearts and forgive our sins. Let us live according to a new kingdom so that we're no longer defined by the old, but the new. And I pray, God, you'd heal our hearts. You'd forgive our sins. You put the blood of your son, Jesus, upon this house and bind the work of our enemy we pray for this grace. Your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, a fundamental theme that's given to us in the book of Revelation is, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So that although God is slow to anger, as we saw last time, and he's abounding in love, the day of vengeance does indeed come. And so we found in Deuteronomy in chapter 32 and verse 35 in our previous study that the Lord said, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. And so we found that Moses, going through the Red Sea with the armies of Pharaoh chasing him, the sea opens up, he comes onto the other side, the waters close in on the enemy, who seemed in the moment to be so strong, so invincible, and yet in a moment he was destroyed because of his pride. And Moses is standing on the other side, and it's what we've come to call the Song of Moses. And he sings and he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord and recompense because the time when their foot shall slip. And this, of course, is suggesting that those who appear to be standing firm in their wickedness will eventually stumble and face the consequences of their actions. And that retribution or recompense, as the passage says, will indeed come. But it will come by the hand of God. But why? And only by the hand of God. Why? Because of what the Bible says, the wrath of man does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. And God is the only one who can accurately judge in the dynamics and the situation. And the fact reality is, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, if he's slow to anger, we too are to be slow to anger. We're to be abounding in love. Because if God Almighty, again, is slow to anger, think this through, who are we to be quick to anger? Very careful. And in the Bible it says, in your anger, don't sin. So evidently anger is not sin inherently, but it very often leads to it. So we do get angry. 
but we're not to sin. And yet I'd suggest to you that we sin because we are, for one reason, we're quick to anger. We give ourselves, it's a pride actually. I know what's going on, I can make a quick judgment, boom. And yet God himself waits patiently. I think of the book of Jonah, I've said it before, it's a well of a story, you should read it, it's great. And <laughs> the book of Jonah, he's called to go preach the gospel to the Ninevites, to repent. And apparently repentance must be a good thing. It's amazing how our culture has told us that repentance is a bad thing. Because as soon as you say repent to somebody, they're saying, you don't love me. Repent just means change your mind. That's all it means. But we've connotatively understood it to mean repent. In other words, i.e., you worthless piece of trash, you're worth nothing. That's not what it's saying at all, even remotely. And yet the idea of repentance, he didn't want to preach repentance to the Ninevites, who were the most wicked, corrupt, and evil people on this earth at that time. Why? Because he knew if they heard the message of repentance, that God would extend his mercy and his grace. And so he goes into the well, you know the story, over the side of the ship, down into Hades, the passage actually says. And then it says the word of the Lord, after he's kind of vomited, he had his own shipwreck experience in life. And then he's vomited upon the, the, the sands. There he is, and undoubtedly being three days and three nights in the belly of a well, to borrow the words of Jesus, he was probably pale. I don't know if you've ever taken a bath. You remember when you were a little kid, you take one for an hour because it was fun, and you get out and you'd be wrinkly and white. He would have been wrinkled and white all over. The acid in the stomach, because it's a mammal, would have eaten all of the skin off of, or the hair off of his body. He would have been white. He would have been bald. He would have been wrinkly. And he shows up in the city of Nineveh and says, repent, yet 40 more days, God's going to destroy the city. And evidently, he wasn't the instigator of this. Because the people so quickly and readily received the message, it's evident in and of itself that God had already been telling them this. And they repented. And they turned. And Jonah, who hated the Ninevites because of the evil things that they did, oh, you know, like um, destroying Israel, uh, taking people alive, skinning their skin off of them and making furniture, chopping all the heads up off of your brethren, piling up in heaps outside the city. I mean, these were not kind people. Quartering people with oxen going in different directions. I mean, these were not nice people. Their whole religion taught that brutality was the way to show your authority. It's completely opposite of Christ. And yet, wanting God to judge the Ninevites, and God didn't because they received his message, as opposed to rejoicing that the people had come to the Lord, he goes outside the city and begins to mope. And God made a vine grow over the top of his head, and it gave him shade, but that same God also made it wither. And when it withered, because he, why is he outside the city? Because he's hoping that maybe they'll screw up in their repentance and God will judge them. God didn't judge them. They repented, and a whole generation of Ninevites were spared, including those who don't know, as God said, know the right hand from their left. What is he talking about? Their children. What about the children within the city? You care nothing for them? And Jonah didn't because he was religious. He was too principled. And all of a sudden, he's sitting outside the city, so God gave him grace and then took it away. And now he's furious at God, and God asks him a question. Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? And you know what Jonah's saying? Yes, I do. You don't know what I've been through. <laughs> the same thing we say. Huh. Do you have any right to be angry? And it's interesting to me because God, who has every right to be angry, often is not. And man, who has zero right to be angry, often is. In Romans in chapter 12 and verse 19, Paul the Apostle picked up on that passage in Deuteronomy 32. And he said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so that as you live life, you're going to be presented with many situations to lay out your wrath. You're going to be given many opportunities to, to make things right, as we try to tell ourselves. But the Christian is to be disciplined in the way of his master. The idea of being disciplined is, means you're a disciple. It doesn't mean that you're kind of a category of people. It's a word of action. It means I'm disciplined in the way of my master. You know, that whole thing, what would Jesus do? Actually kind of works if you know the right Jesus, the biblical Jesus. And would Jesus do this? Would Jesus say those things about that? Would Jesus get online and do this? Would he do that? No, he wouldn't. And the discipline of a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, is to only behave in the way of the master. And the Christian is disciplined. As Paul says, why? Why, why are you and I disciplined in these things? They've wronged me, but why are we disciplined? Because the Bible says, the New Testament says, Paul the Apostle said, the day of Christ will bring it to life, to light, excuse me. The day of Christ is going to reveal what's going on. And Paul, over and again in the epistles, is saying, look, look, I don't even judge myself. Here you guys are judging me. I don't even judge myself. That doesn't mean I'm innocent. But that's saying the day of Jesus Christ is going to prove. And all of you guys that Paul would say are attacking me. The day of Christ will manifest what was really going on. In other words, in order to have that viewpoint on things, you have to have a level of faith. You have to trust the Lord that he sees, he is going to judge, he's going to put it right. And if you can do something because you're in the right position to do something, then of course we do it. But most of us aren't in the right position. Most of us have no business. Most of us, the best you can do is the Bible says, don't meddle in someone else's affairs. Well, I'm doing it for holy reasons. You may think that, but it won't end that. The Bible says, don't meddle in other people's affairs. Don't, and it puts us this way in the Proverbs, don't take a dog by its ears. <laughs> you ever take a dog by its ears? If you don't know what I'm talking about, try it. It's really not fun, actually. <laughs> Just grab its ears, and you're going to get bit. And we're not to have a healthy interest in meddling or even investigating. or even we're, That's not supposed to be our method. We're to be people that are... People of faith were disciplined in the ways of our master so that we say, Lord, you are going to reveal. You're going to bring things to light. You're going to, recompense is yours. Vengeance is yours. Paul said, I don't even judge myself. But here you guys are, you're so proud, if you want the expanded Ben IV version, because you think that you can handle it. And no man can handle it. And so it assumes a level of faith to walk in this kind of a discipline. In other words, the man who lays out his wrath today is displaying that he himself does not actually believe that God is who he said he is, and God will do what he said he'll do. But if you truly believe this, you don't have to take God's action for him. And the frustration, when you begin to think this way, there's a frustration that comes into your life. It's the same frustration that when you, you're not seeing justice, because of what you perceive to be right and wrong. You may be completely off, but you perceive it to be right or wrong. And because you're not seeing justice being done, as we wait for God to move in the situation, you're given to a certain frustration and despair that was echoed in Psalm 73 by Asaph. You know what Asaph said? I'll read it to you. 
He says, for I envied the arrogant. And when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. He goes on and on. He's saying, listen, I, I'm sitting back. I'm going, I'm going through hardships and difficulties. These guys that have wronged me are being blessed. Everything's great in their life. God, why don't you judge them? Why are they prospering? That's the frustration that you face when you begin to enter into the faith that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He goes on to talk about they have this God talk. They talk about heaven, but the earth is really where their tongue is tied. They scoff, they make malice, they make oppression. He goes on and on. But in verse 16, he says, when I've tried to really begin to understand this and to figure out why this was, you know what it produced in me? A troubled heart. What is it going to produce in you and I? A troubled heart. But don't miss verse 17. Until, he said, I was troubled. I looked at it. I was frustrated. Yeah, God's sovereignty. He's going to take judgment. But then I look, you're not taking judgment, God. And it's troubling me. Until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord. And then he said, in verse 17, I understood their final destiny. In other words, until I really looked at the long haul, I thought that God was missing it, and they're getting away with it. And in the moment, they are. But this requires faith, and it's natural for men to want to bring judgment upon another man, because inherently there's within us a sense of justice. The problem is we've relegated truth to ourselves and therefore, we interpret justice based upon how we are treated. We never see our own faults, and that's why it's dangerous for us to do this. That's why you are not given the right to rule and reign with Christ, according to the New Testament, until you have a resurrection body. You know what's in your resurrection body? I'll tell you what's not in it. Sin. <laughs> that destroys your perspective. You aren't able to make the right judgment until you're given. So God says, listen, I'm not going to allow you to rule and reign with me until that day happens. But the Christian must be a man of faith. The disciples weren't Christians. Did you know that? And the disciples of Jesus Christ, before Jesus dies upon a cross and rose again and sent their Holy Spirit, they weren't, reborn, they weren't born again because you're born again by the Spirit of God entering into you. So before he died upon a cross and rose again, they were just we call them his disciples. He called them his disciples, the disciplined ones. And the fact is they have a great hindrance within them. That is, they were relying upon the old nature. And the Bible tells us in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, in verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, that is, to be crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Verse 54, and when his disciple James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? I mean, we saw Elijah do this, and we're going to do the same thing. <laughs> if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume you, First Kings says, chapter 1. And they parrot that phrase of Elijah because good religious men know how to quote Bible verses that don't apply to them. But he turned and he rebuked them. And they're just quoting scripture. He rebuked them. And then the King James adds, you don't know what spirit you are of. 
Man, they were convinced it was the spirit of Jesus Christ. It wasn't the spirit of Jesus Christ because Jesus rebuked that spirit. But it was something that made them feel empowered and strong. They were never more convinced that they were right in that moment. And as I already suggested, the problem is that we screw things up in our judgment. And I'm not suggesting antinomianism, but you need to tread pretty lightly. And God doesn't allow his servants to be the agents for his judgment. Did you know that? God does not allow his servants to be the agents of his judgments. And I say that because I've met many Christians over the years. God told me to do this. Well, I don't doubt God told you to do that, but that tells me you're not his servant. But God told me to do it. Isaiah chapter 10, the Assyrians are the rod of my anger. The Babylonians were God's judgment tool against the Israelites, but he only uses non-believers, to put it in our common language, as the tools to bring judgment onto his servants. Or rather, he allows the non-believer to do that. But anybody would take up judgment upon themselves and attack, it's a screaming statement in biblical consistency that that person actually doesn't know the Lord. Yet they are more, never more convinced than they, that they've heard God speak and they're going to do it. You better double check your heart. And whenever God uses a man to judge his people, they're always the wicked. In the Bible, it talks about this parable in Matthew in chapter 13 about the the angels in the last days being the tools to separate the wheat and the chaff. And in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24, he said, he put another parable to them, Jesus is speaking, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so the plants came up and bore grain. And then the weeds also appeared. And let me explain briefly. Who is the man? It's Jesus. He's going out and sowing good seed, which is wheat, in the field. But when he, the the servants of that man, go to sleep, the enemy comes in, which was the devil. The interpretation is given in Matthew chapter 13, so this is not a stretch. Just read it. The enemy comes in, and he plants seeds as well. But they're not sons of the kingdom, which is the wheat, but they're sons of the evil one, tares. And I found that T-A-R-E-S, tares, are often (laughs) T-E-R-R-O-R-S. And there they are, they're growing up, and the wheat looks exactly like the tares. The tares look exactly like the wheat, except for one thing. The tares have no fruit. And the fruit is for nourishment. You know, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You don't know if someone's walking in the Spirit until they take a bite out of you. There's no nourishment coming through that person. But rather, they're just T-E-R-R-O-R-S. Jesus goes on to say, And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Because at some point, just joking. (laughs) I mean, I hate to break it to you. Have you seen the lawns in this city? I'm just saying. Of course, if we ever go hungry, you're going to have plenty of, you know, dandelions are great for your nourishment. As long as the dog hasn't peed on them. And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And the servant said to him, then do you want us to go gather them? 
Jesus, if the enemy planted those seeds, let's go in there and just rip the weeds out. He said, no. Why? Verse 20, 29, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, which are the angels, he tells us that later on, gather the weeds first. First, gather the weeds, which is happening in chapter 14, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So he's addressing those people, evidently, that fundamentally desire purity within the body of Christ. And in their desire for purity, they want to make sure that they root out any wickedness. Well, it's good that you want purity. But he's saying your desire to expose and to root something out and to investigate is actually the means by which you destroy people. You rip up some of the weeds with them. And as opposed to promoting the kingdom, you've actually done the work of the enemy. The enemy doesn't care if his weeds are torn out. But if he can use his weeds being torn out to rip off one of the wheat, he's won. And the sons of the evil one are expendable to the enemy. And he motivates good religious people to make sure that they root out anything that defiles. It's not the spirit of Jesus Christ. He said, you'll screw it up. My angels will do that in the last days. Even as chapter 14 tells us, the angels are doing this work. And so here in Revelation 14, it unveils God's just judgments in separating the wicked from the earth in a vivid and a just judgment upon them. As it says in verse 19, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So I have a question. He thrust it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Is this a gentle action? No. But it shows us the forceful and intense process where the harvested vine faces the full extent of the wrath of God. And God is ultimately, violently setting the earth right. So that when we look at the previous chapter in chapter 13, it's a portrayal of a world that's ruled by Satan and a world where Satan seems to be getting away with it. It's given his mark of the beast. He's got his false prophet. The whole world's worshiping him. Ah, ooh, wow, look at, the, look at him who rose from the dead. The false resurrection. So that when we get into chapter 14, it becomes a powerful response to show that God will ultimately have his way. And he will ultimately bring about divine retribution rectifying the injustices and ensuring that those who have done wrong will face the consequences, both here on earth and into eternity. And so the king comes to the earth, as it says here in verse 14, he's called the son of man. I ask myself, of course, in verse 14 again, he says, uh, wrong page. He says, then I looked and behold, a white cloud seated on the cloud was one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who in the world is the son of man? It's a good question. In fact, in the book of Daniel, we encounter a prophetic vision that reveals a significant, mysterious figure. Daniel describes a remarkable scene, if you'll just take the time to read it in chapter 7, in which he sees someone that resembles a man, and he refers to this figure as, quote, the son of man. And this son of man arrives with the clouds of heaven. Look at the passage here. He comes in the clouds of heaven. 
And he approaches the Ancient of Days who represents God the Father. In the biblical doctrines, you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three are one. It's called the triunity of the Godhead. Not three separate gods, one God, but three persons. How does that work? I don't know. But that's what it teaches. And what's truly astonishing about this vision is that the Son of Man is not just an ordinary human. He's something more. Because he's granted immense authority, glory, and a kingdom. And this kingdom is described as one that will include people from all nations, all languages, all people, even as Revelation does. And moreover, the most remarkable aspect of the vision is that the Son of Man's dominion is everlasting. It never ends. It'll never be destroyed. You say, well, who is this Son of Man? Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He will rule over a kingdom that will last forever and ever. And that's exactly what was said about Jesus in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 32, where he says, he, Jesus, will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. He's the Son of God and the Son of Man. And the Lord God will give him, watch, the throne of his father David. Where did David rule? In heaven or on earth? So he's going to be given the throne of David and it will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. You can't have two guys with a kingdom that will never end. You've got one. This sounds like Jesus. And in fact, when we turn to the Gospel of John, specifically in chapter 5, we find Jesus referring to himself likewise as the Son of Man. The Son of God and the Son of Man, to be true. And he uses this title to explain why God the Father has granted him, of all people, the right to judge. His right to judge is based upon the fact that he is the Son of Man. That's what the text says. So John chapter 5 and verse 27 explicitly states that Jesus, again, has been given authority to execute judgment because I am the Son of Man. Interesting. And so for now, I'd say that while some individuals find it challenging to grasp the connection between Jesus and the Son of Man mentioned in Daniel 7 and Revelation 14, the reason they question this connection is because they struggle to accept that Jesus in the text of Revelation 14 is responding to another angel that's mentioned in verse 15. What do you mean? Look at verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour has come to reap, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. An angel is calling out to him? It almost sounds like the angel is commanding Jesus. And so they look at that and they say, well, this can't be Jesus because Jesus doesn't take commands from angels. <laughs> What's going on? Well, this calling out, as it says in verse 15, is not the angel, I would suggest to you, commanding him. But it's more akin to a prayer in the same way that you and I often offer prayers to the, to the Lord himself. Uh, for instance, have you ever said, Lord, just deal with them? Lord, deal with them in Jesus' name. Have you ever said, Lord, make a way, deliver me, help me? Are you commanding God? I hope not. But oftentimes we pray this way. Why? You're not commanding him. You're delivering the situation over to him. And if you take that tone to verse 15, where the angel speaks to the Lord, the Son of Man, 
You find as opposed to commanding him, he's aligning with God's predetermined purposes and allowing God, because God won't do it until you pray. He's allowing God to act. In fact, it tells us one angel comes from the altar. That's the altar of incense, which is the place of prayer. And it appears that this is a response to the prayers of the saints. And on earth, as you had human agents in the temple, the Bible says it was a model of the real thing in heaven. And evidently, according to chapter 14, the real model in heaven is not run by humans, but by angels. And those angels playing their function are responding with the prayers of the saints and saying, Lord, reap the earth. Lord, put in your sickle. Put in, reap. The hour of the reaping has come. Your harvest is fully ripe. In other words, Jesus is the one that is being prayed to. And think this through. It's highly unlikely that anyone else apart from Jesus would be, wearing, would be called the Son of Man and be depicted as wearing a golden crown symbolizing his victory, which I'll speak on in a second, and sitting upon a cloud. He comes with the clouds in great glory. But notice the nature of the crown that he's wearing. The Greek word there is Stephanos. He's wearing a crown, a Stephanos. It's not a diadema, which is often associated with royalty, the royal diadems, denoting to us sovereign authority. Stephanos typically refers to a wreath or a garland. And he's wearing a golden Stephanos. And in ancient times, it was a symbol of victory and honor rather than a kingly rule. And so while it's important to note that Jesus is later on depicted in Revelation 19, wearing a diadem elsewhere in various places, he is royalty in this situation where he is imputing judgment, judgment upon the people as the son of man, he's wearing a Stephanos. And the distinction holds significant symbolism, I think. As stated, crowns traditionally signified an authority, a power. But in the context, the Stefano symbolizes a different type of crown. It's a crown that's earned through conflict and triumph. Let me ask you a question. Was there any conflict and triumph that Jesus earned as the Son of Man? Think this through. That became the basis for his right to judge. And the nuance that I'm suggesting to you underscores a profound aspect of the role of judge of the world. And again, the crown adorning his head isn't merely a symbol of inherent power, a diadema. It's a badge of a victorious conqueror. And so it signifies that he's overcome. And therefore, his authority to execute judgment stems from his triumphant victory, not his inherent nature. You see the difference? And this portrayal of Christ, portrayal of Christ wearing a crown of victory as he prepares to mete out judgment is significant. Because it serves as a poignant reminder that his authority and right to judge are firmly rooted in his ultimate triumph over all forms of evil and sin, and even the forces of darkness. And his judgments, therefore, aren't arbitrary. They're not capricious, but they're founded on the bedrock of righteousness, right conduct, and victory that he procured 
in his own obedient life, namely at the, the cross. He is a conquering king. And this becomes the basis of his judgment. And so I'll state it again, just in case I didn't make myself clear, which is highly possible. When Christ comes to judge the world, he doesn't do so merely as a ruler of authority. He does so as a conquering hero who has vanquished all forms of evil, including the Antichrist that's mentioned in Revelation 13. And thus this portrayal refers, reaffirms his rightful role as judge. And it solidifies the idea that his judgments are not only just, but are final and they're conclusive. And thus, coming back to John 5, 27, which we already read, it suddenly makes sense, for the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's the basis. Does that make sense now? <laughs> and as an obedient sacrifice, he earned the right to judge and to put down the powers of darkness. That's why he can judge. And notice the description of the earth when he does judge in verse 15. It's called ripe. The idea of the Greek word for ripe there is the idea of overripe. I got some bananas. We've been kind of going through a banana fast in our house. You ever do that? You know, your kids are starving for bananas. Then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, we've had enough bananas, and they just sit on the counter. Usually you make zucchini bread or something like that, but that assumes you're responsible. <laughs> and there they are. And I had this banana this last week. And it was not just ripe. It, you know when it gets mushy? And I opened up, I said, I'm going to put this in the freezer. It's going to be so sweet. It's going to be delicious. And so I peeled it open. And it was hard to peel it open because it was so mushy. And you know how the banana has like three different, you know, things to it? But they're all usually stuck together because of the starch. Well, the starch turned to sugar and it kind of, so it kind of fell apart to three little separate, almost watery pieces. I said, this is going to be really sweet. So I, I kind of smushed it into a bag and ziplocked it because I'm way too cheap <laughs> to throw anything away. That's what happens when you grow up po. <laughs> we didn't grow up poor. We got po. We, the O-R was for rich people. <laughs> We're just po. <laughs> and that banana was overripe. So to what did we do? It wasn't ripe. It was overripe. And if God doesn't judge until the, the fruit is overripe, the wickedness is overripe, what we deduce is that God's judgment is only when the earth is overripe for judgment. In other words, God doesn't rush into judgment. He's slow to anger. Joseph, Joseph Augustus Seiss He's uh, living in the 19th century, a prominent Lutheran minister, a theologian, and author. He said, it must be remembered that evil has its harvest as well as good. There's a harvest of misery and woe. A harvest for gathering, binding, and burning the tares, as well as for gathering the wheat into the garner of heaven. And when this prayer of the angels ascends to God for him to put in his sickle and to reap for the hour of the reaping has come, God only responds because the time has come. In other words, we don't create reality by praying. Prayer aligns us with God. And God won't act until we pray. And God never judges before his time. We do. We do. But God doesn't. And judgment was complete, as it says in verse 16. Verse 16. 
He says, so he, he sat on the clouds, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. You know that old um, Civil War song, you know? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of, you know, the old Civil War song, right? Listen to how it reads. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, his trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. This is talking about this passage. That's where this song came from. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. A great old English preacher that we used to be friends with before he had died, Stanley Voke. You can hear his sermons online. And Stanley used to come to Calvary Spokane all the time. Absolutely loved Stanley and his wife. One of the most incredible men I've ever met in my life. And Stanley was good old Englishman. And he says, he comes to our church and he goes, do you like my accent? He goes, good, because I don't have one. It's all you that has the accent. <laughs> he goes, it's our language. We're the English. <laughs> he was a very funny man. But he tells the occasion where someone had mistaken that song, the grapes of wrath are stored. A little girl thought they were talking about the great giraffe. <laughs> well, trust you me, there is no great giraffe in heaven. Though all dogs do go to heaven. Cats, we know where they go. <laughs> but the question that I have is, what strength have grapes against the weight and power of a man when he sets his foot upon them? And the riper they are, the more helpless they are. And that's how they did in the ancient world. They put in a great big round vat, they put the grapes there, and they'd stand on them. I suppose the yeast was coming from the toes. <laughs> so ancient wine had a, a soil taste, I'm sure. But the alcohol would kill that. No worries. It just starts the process. <laughs> but if you think that through, here the heels of omnipotence, God Almighty, is portrayed as crushing as the crushing force, and men sink. Beneath his heel, those who have taken the mark of the beast, they sink beneath his heel in the same way that grapes can only break and sink under the foot of a man. And so he says, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too took a sharp sickle. And another angel came out, verse 18, from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the cluster from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the harvest, the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadii. And so the effect of this crushing is that blood is flowing as high as the passage says the horse's bridle. Now, there's basically three interpretations that you can put upon the passage. Basically, number one, you could say literally the blood is flowing as high as the horse's bridle for 200 miles. That, given the population of the world, about 8 billion people, take all the pints of blood out of them, take all the animals in the world, take all the blood out of them, mix it together, and it doesn't even put a dent. And so some people have said, well, it happens, but it's like flowing in one complete wave down through the valley of Kidron or something like that. And therefore, then it's flowing as high as a horse's bridle. 
Providence doesn't say that. And therefore, you look at it and say, well, either this is literally going to happen, but hear this, if it is literally happened, it has to be a miracle. God could do miracles. Or secondly, it could be that it's clearly figurative. What do I mean? In order for figurative language to be, figurative language is part of the literal interpretation. Again, I go up and I say, oh, this chair weighs a ton. I'm just taking it literally. Ben picked up a 2,000-pound ton, a chair. And you're going to come to a conclusion, either I'm super strong or I'm a complete liar. I just take the Bible literally. No, you're an idiot. Everybody knows that I'm saying figurative language is obviously figurative. It has to be exaggerated. And so if it's so exaggerated, that's the only time in the literal interpretation that we give ourselves permission to say he's using clearly figurative language. That's the second possibility. The second possibility is, is that it's so exaggerated, he's saying taking the picture more from the wine vat than a literal kind of experience. He's saying there are so many grapes inside of there, it's flowing out four feet high, three feet high. But he's not, but, and, and it keeps flowing for 200 miles. In other words, maybe it's flowing out at four feet high, but then it keeps stretching because there's so much of it, it just keeps flowing for 200 miles. It's a possibility. But it's clearly overly figurative in some senses. But there's probably a third, if we take the literal interpretation, I like what David Guzik said. He said, this probably describes blood splattering up to the horse's bridles. A picture of tremendous carnage in the Battle of Armageddon described in Revelation 16 and 19. It's not likely, he said, a depiction of a river of blood running the length of the promised land and as high as the horse, horse's bridle is. This would be almost incomprehensible river of blood. And mathematically, it is. You just punch it out. It's, it's impossible. And again, God could do that. But it's either clearly figurative or he's saying it's going to be as high because of the splattering of the blood. But regardless of the ter- interpretation, the point being that God's wrath is complete and it's thorough. As it says again in verse 18, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. And this is described as wrath in verse 19, if you see it there, where it says that the grape harvest of the earth was thrown into the great wrath, great winepress of the wrath of God. And so, again, let me say that there's two types of wrath in the Bible. And hence, in the book of Revelation, the two Greek words are orge and thumos. And those two words are used to describe God's wrath. We always just kind of think, well, you know, it's just somebody getting angry. Well, no, it's, it's more complicated than that. Because the words help us understand different aspects of how God responds to sin and rebellion. Most common wrath for God is orge. That's not the word used here. Orge represents O-R-G-E in English. It represents a settled and enduring form of anger. It's controlled and just anger. It's not reactive. And it's an anger that God holds in response to sin and rebellion and disobedience. And when orge is used in Scripture, it emphasizes the consistency and the righteousness of God's anger. It signifies his ongoing displeasure with wrongdoing. It's like a slow-burning ember within a, a wood stove. It represents the smoldering, enduring anger of God against everything that destroys man. How could he be God if he didn't? How could he love something that's killing you? 
And thus it's akin to a controlled fire that consistently smolders in response to sin that destroys us. How can God be at peace with that if he loves you? But the second word in what's used here is thumos. It's kind of a thundering, thumos, thunder. And it conveys more of an intense and a passionate anger. And it can be thought of as an outburst of strong emotion. You know, you smash your thumb with a hammer. Boom! Thumos. <laughs> but that's uncontrolled. It appears that God's thumos anger is only in response to long, slow to anger, orde anger. Because there comes a time where he has to cut things off. And thus thumos is described, used to describe moments of heightened divine anger. It's associated with more immediate and dramatic displays of judgment and wrath. And it's like a sudden, it's like a lightning strike. Whereas orge would be an ember in a wood stove, thumos would be a lightning strike during a storm. And it symbolizes the immediate and the intense outbursts of God's anger, resembling an unexpected and force of lightning itself. And so what do I say? What do I say to all of this? Again, long before his thumos anger, God's anger has been slowly building as he's striving with man on earth. The choice of orge or thumos indicates the different aspects of God's response to sin. And God's been watching, he's been waiting, he's been striving with man. And the Bible says he doesn't want a single man, that's everyone in this room, he doesn't want a single man to perish, but men have free wills. A man who persists in his rebellion to the only wise God will find himself by nature, not by will, but by nature, as Paul said, objects of his wrath. Like dry leaves in a fiery furnace, you're destroyed. Not by his will. He wants to make you fireproof by putting his nature in you. But if you only retain your nature, the day's going to come that you're going to face a wood stove. And if you don't have the new nature in you, you'll be destroyed. So by nature, you're objects of his wrath, but not by his will. And when men finally do seal their doom, continually, it's a process, by continually rebelling against God's call, because, Lord Jesus, unless you save me, I can't be saved. But these say, nope, we're going to accept the, the kingdom of the enemy, because it's pragmatic. And God's fair with all men. When he comes to that point where orge has been laying out for years sometimes, most often, the action to remove these men from the earth and into eternity will not be a passive action. It'll be active. It'll be a thumos of God, where men will forever be placed outside of his presence. A surgeon cuts off the leg that's gangrenous. It's not a passive action. It's quite violent but it must be done. And that's what he said in Matthew 24, those days must end for the sake of the elect. In other words, if my kingdom is ever going to come to this earth, I must completely eradicate this disease from the earth. And the action of putting them into, will be, putting them into eternity from earth will be an active, but there, there will also be a passive once they are in eternity. Because once they're in eternity, it'll be a place, as I've suggested two weeks ago, it'll be a place where God is not. What about the omnipresence of God? Yep, that's today. 
But God, who is all-powerful, also has the ability to create a space where he is not. And he does. It's called hell. Thy will be done. And men want to be there. They don't want to be with him. They hate him. And he says, your will be done. And so I close by saying the imagery in chapter 14 is that of a king seated on a throne on the clouds, giving his commands for a judicious decision. He's not capricious. He's not careless. He's settled. This has been long in the working. He has been striving with man. And once the divine fiat is sent out, the sickle is swung over the whole earth, and thus his judgment is complete. And like overly ripe grapes beneath the foot of a man, the earth is judged. The wickedness is removed, and then and only then does the kingdom age begin. That's what he's saying. Are you here this morning? You're feeling condemned? I say that's bad. Because condemnation always has the effect of driving you further away from Christ. But we confuse it with conviction. Are you here this morning? You're getting convicted? I say, good. But the purpose of that is to drive you closer to Christ. You have unconfessed sin. You know, all of us have sin. Do you have conscious sin you know is just off? You know it's off. Here's how you deal with that. Lord Jesus, that is sin. It is not okay. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Help me, Lord. You know, like Princess Leia, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. We do have Jesus, but just substitute Princess Leia and Jesus. I hope you understand that. (laughs) You know, the two loaves he multiplied. (laughs) Sorry. But the person that says, yep, I don't give a rip. I'm going to do this anyway. You're in trouble. But you're here this morning saying, I'm struggling. I keep falling in. I keep doing this. I say, good. That's much better than the guy that made peace with his sin. But the primary sin that by which men, all men are going to be judged is what have you done with my son Jesus? That's the only sin that remains, reject, rejecting the way of salvation. You know, we get so kind of N-I-G-G-A-R-D-L-Y is the only word. That I, it, people misunderstand that, and they think I'm saying a different word, but it's called niggardly. We're, in terms of our Christianity, we become so pharisaical Think for a moment right now that if loved ones that do not know Christ, if they suddenly turn their face to him and says, Jesus, help me, save me from my sin, we would be rejoicing. Never leave that foundation. That is your only hope. Build on that foundation by the grace of God. Become a disciple. Learn how to conquer those things by the grace of God in your life. Learn to confess them. A Christian's a good confessor. But when you make peace with these things, you're in deep doo-doo. You're in deep doo-doo. Never make peace with these things. Because you have accepted Christ. Don't let those things rob you. You know what those things in your life do? They rob you of the grace that could have been yours. You could have had so much more. I look at my life and I think, God, I hope I'm walking. See, I live my life, and I still live my life, to have no regret. If you, if you determine to have no regret, you'll have some. If you determine to have just a little bit of regret, you'll have a lot. But you come and you say, Lord, that's not going to save you. You save me alone. And I come before the throne. I confess it as sin. I say, Lord Jesus, I want to align with your kingdom. Save me from these things that will carry me down a path of destruction. Forgive me of my sin. Give me grace. 
You start praying like that, I can tell you one thing. Don't be surprised if God moves. <laughs> and he shows his grace, which isn't to keep you in filth. His grace is giving you a shower, cleaning you up, putting new clothes on you, teaching you how to walk. That's his grace. And so, Lord, I pray that as we navigate complex passages that discuss your wrath, we wouldn't be reactionary, which is so often the way that uh, non-Bible teaching churches, quite honestly, deal with it because they think it sounds mean, but it's actually the greatest grace to preserve what can be saved. And we're doing nobody any favors by lying to them. And so we confront these passages. It grieves our heart. We have loved ones that if they would just come to see Jesus is the only way, we would be rejoicing. Let us make sure that our own lives are found in you, but having been found in you, we don't make ourselves useless for the kingdom. Because listen, your loved one, may, maybe they're not even coming to him because you're so jammed up. Do you love them enough? That's a theological discussion, maybe. But why would you want to risk it? The Bible says I can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so, God, I don't want what I've done, what I've thought, to affect my usability. Because I'm in Christ, it's as good as done. It is finished. But do I love these people? I pray, God, that you give us grace to not be so self-centered. You're here this morning, you're stuck in sin. You know what you're doing? You're trying to heal a wound Acknowledge it. But know this, you're putting a diseased bacteria rag on a cut. And you're causing greater harm. I understand the pull as much as anybody else. But come to the Lord and say, God, I got a cut. And then I try to remedy it with a diseased rag. The diseased rag is what I'm doing to myself. The cut is what someone else did to me. God, would you come and be my healer, my great physician? Would you touch my blighted heart? And so, Lord, I don't know the, the conversations that you need to have with these people, but I pray as we close in song, you would heal hearts. I don't want to condemn a single person, but I want men and women to be liberated by the great liberator himself. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.